Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. State surge, almost one in every 100 Americans has tested positive for coronavirus. Earnings, eek. U.S. companies brace for the worst results since the financial crisis and Senate sanctions. China retaliates, targeting leading U.S. politicians. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Again, to first move wherever you are joining us from in the world. Lots coming up today, as always, including Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman giving his take on the economic outlook just a day after a new record rise in COVID cases around the world, 230,000 plus cases. In fact, according to the World Health Organization, what does this mean for the global economy? What does it mean also for the global consumer? We've got the CFO of soft drink and snack giant PepsiCo coming up with his take to global stocks. Meanwhile, have some fizz. I have to say, at the beginning of a fresh week, we're looking at a higher U.S. open, buoyed by more vaccine optimism, in fact. This time it's Pfizer and German biotech BioNTech granting fast-track designation by the FDA for two, in fact, of their vaccine candidates. So that driving some of the optimism, I think, more broadly. The Nasdaq beginning the week at record highs as earnings season begins. And expectations, I have to say, are pretty bleak. But of course, that's in the past. That was Q2. The key is now what they say about the future, if anything. Pay close attention, too, to the bank earnings for a sense of the real underlying economic damage. Remember, they face consumers around the world. Very important for the U.S. consumer, too. Now, a key acknowledgement, perhaps, of the ongoing uncertainties out there, the fear gauge, the VIX volatility index has risen as well. The real outperformer, though, take a look at what's going on in China's stock markets building on last week's 7% advance there. The setting aside fears on Friday that Chinese officials now may want to slow the pace of that stock market rally. The world awaits Thursday's look at Q2 Chinese growth numbers to a bounce into positive Turi expected after a weak Q1. Now, the mark of a true V-shaped recovery, perhaps something that feels increasingly remote here in the United States as COVID cases continue to rise. And that's where we begin the drivers in Florida, in fact, shattering the U.S. record for coronavirus cases in a single day. There were over 15,000 cases reported on Saturday. That's more than Greece and Australia combined for the entire pandemic, just to give you a sense of scale. Rosa Flores reports. Florida coronavirus cases surging. More than 15,000 cases announced on Sunday alone, marking the highest daily number of confirmed cases in the state ever. The test positivity rate in Florida has not dipped below 15 percent since June 25th. 
Governor Ron DeSantis suggested over the weekend that Florida will not proceed to the next phase of reopening. So right now we're not making any changes, status quo. We want to get this positivity rate down. And as we get in a, in a more stable situation, you know, then, then we'll take a look at it. Hospitals in Miami Beach are nearing full capacity. We're going to have to start moving regular beds into ICU beds. So we're clearly being strained at this point, and, and there's obviously an impact on none. COVID cases, which also need to be taken care of. So this is really straining our healthcare system dramatically. Walt Disney World, reopening some parks despite the surge, making masks mandatory and barring anyone displaying COVID symptoms. Georgia seeing an increase in new cases over the past two weeks after being one of the first states to start reopening. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom said she was moving the city's reopening back to phase one, telling residents to stay home except for essential needs. Governor Brian Kemp calling this merely guidance and says the mayor cannot issue her own restrictions. And in northwest Michigan, this 4th of July event with hundreds packing the beach, causing the health department to issue a possible public exposure advisory after some partygoers tested positive. And in Texas, many hospitals are nearing capacity and Governor Greg Abbott warns that things will get worse in the coming week. 35 states across the country are experiencing an increase in weekly coronavirus cases, but administration officials continue to downplay the surge. We are all very concerned about the rise in cases, um, no doubt about that, and that's why we're meeting regularly, we're surging in assistance, uh, but we are in a much better place. This, this is not uh, out of control. And despite warnings from health experts and school officials, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos brushing off the risks of reopening schools. There is no, nothing in the data that would suggest that kids being back in school is, uh, is dangerous to them. And in fact, it's, it's more a, a matter of their health and well-being that they be back in school. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi firing back, saying DeVos is putting children and teachers at risk and ignoring the science. I think what we heard from the secretary was malfeasance uh, and, and, and dereliction of duty. We all want our children to go back to school. Teachers do, parents do, and children do. But they must go back safely. Rosa Flores reporting there. So many mixed messages and not the only thing investors have to deal with this week. Kicking off what could be the worst earnings season since the 2008 financial crisis Netflix, Goldman Sachs, PepsiCo and others reporting results for the first full quarter since the pandemic began. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, we're expecting to see earnings drop by almost half in the second quarter, though I've made the point and I'll make it again. That's backward looking. The key is what, if anything, we hear about the future. I think guidance is really going to be key here. I really want to hear from these CEOs about what they're seeing and how they're feeling about reopenings and uh, what kind of recovery they're expecting in the American economy, How just how long this misery is going to go on. Because the second quarter was the coronavirus quarter. I mean, it's all in there, all that misery of, of coronavirus and what it has done to the American economy. So we'll get a really good look at what happened, and we're, go- we're going to want to hear where we're going here. I'm going to be really closely watching the banks, of course. I mean, their bank profitability just crushed by these low interest rates, the zero interest rate policy world, the ZERP world. That's going to be here for the foreseeable uh, future here. And they're taking on a lot of loan risk, right? All of this uh, lending activity because of the coronavirus. So I'm going to be really interested to see what the banks are going to say. I I mean, I think bank earnings are expected to be cut in half at least, right, Uh, for some of these uh, big banks. Overall earnings will be expected to be the worst since the Great Recession, maybe down 40, 45 percent. 
Yeah, I mean, these are astonishing numbers. So, Christine, you said it. Q2 was the pandemic quarter. The sad fact is Q3 is the pandemic quarter. The difference is whether or not we can resist lockdown on some greater scale than, of course, we saw across vast swathes of the economy in Q2. That remains the big question here. We see big states in big trouble. And going in the wrong direction, there are Harvard researchers uh, this morning who are saying there are eight states that should be back in lockdown, Uh, eight states that should be back in lockdown. And we know that there's not a lot of political will for lockdowns again. And in fact, from from the White House and from the Trump administration, you have this big push to get kids back into school and to get things back to normal so that the economy can continue to open up. Um, These cases in Florida, very, very interesting. You go back in time two weeks or three weeks to how loose the restrictions were in Florida. And now you see what's happening happening uh, in hospitals and with the number of cases here. And it's not just testing, finding new cases, but you've got a really high rate of positivity among these cases and hospitalizations that are still rising. So we are still in the thick of it here. Uh, I think the earnings numbers are going to be really ugly. We all know that. The guidance is going to be clear, uh, especially since you've got these hotspots in the United States right now. What are CEOs going to be saying about what they feel will happen next? Yeah, and the likelihood of greater lockdowns accelerates as your medical systems become overloaded. It's not about caseloads. It's not about deaths. It's about simply not being able to deal with the number of cases that the medical system's presented with. Fascinating to see Disney in Florida saying... We feel like, despite the rising cases, very different scenario to what they faced with reopenings in Tokyo, in Shanghai, they felt confident enough in Florida to reopen. They reopened two. Uh, two of the parks are reopened there and two more. Epcot and the uh, Disney Hollywood Studios will open on Wednesday. We know they're at 25 percent capacity. We know it looks a little different in there when you hear from people who have been inside the park. Some are disappointed that there aren't parades and there aren't fireworks. Uh, when you go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, there are, there are rows of seats that are blocked off. They're trying to maintain social distancing. They're requiring people to wear masks. And the, the Disney team has really been working hard to be very upbeat and communicating to people, no, you must wear your mask and it has to be over both your mouth uh, and your nose. Look, there are people who are inside that park who actually are saying it's just what they needed after just these months of lockdown. They needed that sunshine, right? That magic um, from, from the Magic Kingdom. But there are questions about whether this is the right time to do this when the cases in Florida are so severe and when that county in particular is a hot spot uh, at the moment. Is this the right time, the time to do it? Uh, the new head of the parks division there telling CNN this is the new normal. They're going to try to show that you can operate safely in this environment going forward. Yes, and that remains to be seen. A little sparkle, though, and a little happiness, I have to say, goes a long way, but not at the cost of uh, lives and health. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. To China now, Beijing says it's imposing sanctions on U.S. Senators Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, among others. It's in retaliation after the U.S. accused Chinese officials of human rights abuses against Uyghur Muslims in western China. David Culver is live in Beijing for us. I feel like uh, China and David, great to have you with us, have defined the term tit for tat throughout this U.S. presidency, responding in a proportional manner, trying not to escalate. But clearly, we've seen some pretty bold actions overnight. Indeed. And this has been announced, Julia, from the foreign ministry here. And essentially, they're describing this as reciprocal actions taken against the U.S., the two biggest names in those sanctions. Of course, as you mentioned, Senators Cruz and Senator Rubio. Now, both of those individuals have been 
strong critics against China, in particular with what's happening in Xinjiang. Now, the U.S. State Department has alleged that in inhumane treatment of some one million Uyghurs, this is the ethnic minority in that far western region, has been taking place there for some time. And we've seen increased action, at least vocally, um, from the U.S. and action in some of the policy, including the sanctions that came last week against Chinese officials. Now, the foreign ministry didn't go into details as to what it's going to mean for, for example, Senator Cruz and Senator Rubio. However, if it's reciprocal, it would look like what uh, the U.S. did to the Chinese officials. And that essentially says, look, you and your family can't come to China. And so uh, that may be part of this. There could be more coming down. They say they'll go into details and they're not uh, denying that they would put more actions into place coming coming forward um, if they deem it appropriate. But that's the latest where it stands with the uh, back and forth in the U.S.-China tensions portion of all of this. Meantime, you know, they've got an investigation going underway here uh, with the pandemic sourcing. Yeah, and that's the critical thing, too. I have to say, as far as Ted Cruz and Mark Rubio are concerned, I'm sure they were not intending to head to China at any point soon, so they'll be rolling their eyes at this. But as far as the World Health Organization is, we do want to get to the bottom of what happened as far as the virus outbreak is concerned. And we've got a party there now in China investigating. We do. And we've been trying to get some more information on this. And i got to be quite honest, it's been difficult to get information mm. as to what their itinerary is going to look like and what exactly they'll be doing while they're here. And I put those questions not only to Chinese officials, but also to the World Health Organization. And as of now, the only thing that's been confirmed from Chinese officials is that two individuals have arrived from the WHO. We know one of them is an animal health expert, the other an epidemiologist. As far as what exactly they'll do, it's been kept rather vague. Source tracing, Chinese officials saying they're going to be doing this in every country that has uh, been deemed impacted early on with the novel coronavirus outbreak. But no question, when it comes to China and its role, a lot of questions have been put to early handling or mishandling, as the U.S. has certainly alleged. Cover-ups, as we have reported from the local level, from Wuhan officials. And so part of that may play into this. That's going to be the overarching question is, is the WHO and this team in particular going to address that? Now, this is an advanced team, so we expect more individuals to be coming in months to come. But it's certainly a start to what many in the international community, not just the U.S., have been calling for. And that is an investigation into the origins of how this pandemic started, Julia. Yes. And even when we get the results, I think there will still be uh, deep skepticism. And that's going to be the ongoing challenge here. David Cover. Thank you so much right. for that. <laughs> to the biggest merger deal so far this year in the United States, chipmaker Analog Devices has agreed to buy rival Maxim for around $21 billion. The deal will expand their market share in automotive and 5G chip making. Claire Sebastian has all the details for us. Claire, we'll talk about the whys and the wherefores here, but just talk us through the deal first and foremost. It's a big one. It's pretty big, Julia. It values Maxim integrated products at, at around 21 billion, which is about a more than 20% premium on their, their market cap as of uh, Friday. So, so clearly, uh, ADI, uh, Analog Devices, is prepared to pay for this. I think this is part of the landscape that we continue to see within semiconductors, obviously not a lot over the past few months, of consolidation as demand grows significantly more and more connected devices, autonomous vehicles, 
5G, things like that. Uh, but this creates a company with an enterprise value uh, of about $68 billion, so, so a pretty big player within this industry. Uh, it is an all-stock deal, and they do expect that there will be some, some regulatory hurdles that they have to cross. They expect the deal will close in the summer uh, of next year. But, but clearly, the, the, this is about ADI and analog devices wanting to diversify their portfolio and bring costs down. They say that they expect cost synergies of $275 million by the end of year two. Yes, and Maxim's got an army of uh, hardware engineers as well that they want to access as well. What about competition concerns here? Because I look at who the big competitor is, Texas Instruments, and mm. I mean, their market cap's ginormous, what, almost double the size still. Any competition worries here? Well, I think that is one of the things that, that, that regulators are going to look at. As we look over the past few years, Julia, of, 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 of semiconductor deals, there have been a lot of them, but there have also been ones that have stalled because of regulatory issues. But I think because this deal doesn't bring the combined company anywhere really close to the size of Texas Instruments, that should help their cause. Plus, they are, while sort of complementary in certain areas, they are in some of the similar areas, they also are in different areas. The CEO of ADI was keen to point out on a call that they just held at short notice this morning that that, uh, that Maxim has thrived in certain areas where ADI hasn't. For example, in automotive and things like electrified vehicles and, you know, infotainment uh, systems for them, safety systems for them. So I think they're looking at bringing in a more diverse portfolio and that may help with the competition concerns as well. Fantastic. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for being all over that story for us. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other news making headlines around the world. In Poland, Conservative President Andrzej Duda won re-election by a narrow margin. With the count almost complete, he had over 51% of the votes, with Liberal candidate Rafał Trzaskowski on less than 49%. Mr Duda had backed a nationalist government whose Conservative agenda has divided Poland and led to tensions with the European Union. In India, three generations of a high-profile Bollywood family are being treated for coronavirus. The legendary actor Amitabh Bhutchan was hospitalized with his son Barchik after testing positive. His daughter-in-law, actress Ashwari Rai Bhutchan, and granddaughter are self-quarantining at home. Actress Kelly Preston has died after a two-year battle with breast cancer. Her husband, John Travolta, said she fought the disease courageously. Preston, who was 57 years old, was known for her roles in Jerry Maguire and for love of the game. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are set to build on last week's gains, buoyed by positive vaccine news and that multi-billion dollar tech merger that we mentioned as well. The Nasdaq is set to hit fresh all-time highs. It's now up almost 20% year-to-date. That said, sectors whose fortunes depend on successful reopenings remain pretty volatile, including the airlines. Just take a look at what we're seeing for American, if we've got that for you. It rose or fell by more than 6% three times last week. There you go. That's the performance, just to give you a sense of the, of the volatility here. All right, let's go back to oil now. I'm getting mixed up and I can show you this. There we go. A little bit weaker in the session this morning too. Reports say Saudi Arabia and other key producers are in favour of easing production cuts that have helped support prices during the pandemic. The question is, has the global economy recovered and strengthened enough to handle that increased supply? It's all about the supply and the demand, of course. So that's certainly something that we're going to be watching this week. 
All right, let's head to Brazil now, the number two virus hotspot in the world, nearing two million diagnosed coronavirus cases. Indigenous people in Brazil are dying at an alarming rate amid a battle for their land and for their lives. CNN's Bill Weir has more. A long lens found Brazil's most famous COVID-19 patient up and about this weekend, and this Twitter selfie was part of a post that informed the nation they are on the verge of recession, as he called for families to depoliticize the pandemic after so much, quote, misinformation was used as a weapon. To his critics, that is outrageous, since President Bolsonaro often defied a judge's order to wear a mask in public and pushed out two health ministers who disagreed with him. And while he now has a team of doctors and his own palace ICU at the ready, hospitals across his country are jammed. Here in the geographic center of Brazil, a husband and wife suffer in adjoining beds. A son comforts his ailing father, and their doctor is still regaining his strength after 10 days in intensive care. So today, my boss, us boss, is inside with the ventilation, with tube. Really? Yes. Be better. Oh my God. And not respond to chloroquine. Chloroquine is among the cheap, abundant anti-malarial drugs pushed by Bolsonaro as a COVID cure, along with vitamins, steroids, and medication for parasitic worms. Dr. Valella says he's tried them all with wildly mixed results. I don't know what to do, what I do. Right. Water. Yeah, water. Yes. <laughs> yes. You have very little, you're trying everything yes, you can, yes. right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a new disease. Yeah. It's a new, it's a new pandemic. So we don't have things to do. Right. He says it's even more challenging treating the indigenous Brazilians who once had this edge of the Amazon to themselves, but are now surrounded by farms and ranches. A soybean trucker first brought COVID-19 to this region. <laughs> and it is tearing through a community, already struggling with vulnerable immune systems, diabetes, and a deep mistrust of the outside world. I would like Jair Bolsonaro to stop talking stupid nonsense, Cristiano Ruzzo tells me. The doctors have to prescribe, not the president. His government did not take prevention seriously. It did not prepare. The indigenous leader was on a ventilator when his mother died of COVID-19. We have a very strong spirituality. So she was there and took my hand and told me that I'll get out of this to take care of my people. Five days later, my father died. As the pandemic spread, Brazil's Congress passed a bill that would provide clean water, disinfectant, and hospital beds for this country's 850,000 indigenous natives. Last week, those efforts were vetoed by Jair Bolsonaro. Bill Weir reporting there. All right, to news this morning to the NFL. The National Football League's Washington Redskins has announced it will change its name and logo amid renewed protests against systemic racism here in the United States. The name has long been criticized as insulting by Native American groups. The team says it will continue its search for a new name and a logo, but all change this morning after much protest. All right, we're counting down to the market open this morning. We are expecting a positive open. Big week for earnings, of course, too, amid 
the broader challenges of coronavirus. Plenty of analysis coming up shortly. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. PepsiCo reporting Q2 earnings and revenues that topped expectations. Sales fell some 3% overall due to weakness in beverages demand, but snack and food sales were strong. And in Asia-Pacific, sales soared some 10%. PepsiCo, one of the many companies that have withdrawn guidance because of the COVID-related uncertainty. Hugh Johnston is uh, Vice Chairman and CFO at PepsiCo, and he joins us now. Hugh, fantastic to have you with us as always. Many challenges at different stages all around the world. These results show clear resilience, I think. You must be pleased. Yeah, we actually felt like it was a pretty good quarter, Julia. Uh, I think our portfolio actually manages well through the crisis. What, what we've seen is uh, as lockdowns happen, we, we tend to see the snack and food business lift up a little bit. The beverage business obviously doesn't do as well because of lack of mobility. Then as mobility becomes more positive, we've seen the beverage business pick up. The food business loses a little bit, but also stays quite positive. So uh, as we look at it, the portfolio does work uh, work well in, in what's obviously a very challenging environment. It's a tale of two halves for the United States as well, as you quite rightly mentioned, the, the beverage business suffering most offset by the gains in the snack business and, and in Quaker too. Is this where you see most uncertainty going forward, just whether it's in terms of consumer demand, consumer behavior, or of course, what we're seeing in terms of the health crisis itself? Yeah, it's obviously quite difficult to predict. And, and that's true both in the US and, and obviously in many countries around the world. Uh, recently, obviously, we've seen the infection rate rise in the U.S. It's also clearly a challenge in, in a number of markets, and particularly a number of developing and emerging markets. So uh, the uncertainty factor beyond a, a, a couple of months out, unfortunately, is quite high, which is why we withdrew the guidance. However, we do see some trends that seem to be sustaining. Uh, consumers have clearly moved uh, from smaller brands to sort of the big trusted brands that they've known of the past. And that, that pattern seems to be staying in place. Uh, we also see eating at home, particularly in the morning, uh, as a trend that we think is going to continue for, uh, for quite some time to come, which obviously benefits our, our Quaker business. Uh, and then last, one of, one of the bigger shifts we've seen is uh, many, many new shoppers have tried e-commerce and, and many are finding they like it. The e-commerce business that we launched about five years ago uh, will this year do about $3 billion in sales. So uh, clearly the e-commerce the e trend is one that's here to, say, here to stay. Yeah, it's certainly a dominant theme in Asia as well. And I, I mentioned the strength that you saw there specifically. Clearly, they handled the virus very differently. They were earlier than, than other nations around the world, like the United States, like Europe as well. Talk to me about consumer behavior specifically there. Are we approaching, dare I say it, some form of normality yeah, it, it, it's clearly opened up more, but it, it, you still can see consumers and, and, and shoppers uh, operating in a in a more cautious manner. Uh, and I'm not t just talking about spending. I'm really talking about how they go about their day, how they spend their time. Uh, you don't see people getting into large gatherings yet. So uh, we do think of it as a new normal, but the new normal is not exactly the same as the old normal. Uh, that said, there clearly is a move toward towards a bit more openness as we learn more about how to protect ourselves from the virus. It's fascinating to hear how 
consumers are changing their behaviour, but also some aspects are more towards comfort levels, porridge or oatmeal for breakfast, for example, as, uh, as you just alluded to there. What does this all mean for your marketing, your spending plans in the third quarter and the fourth quarter? And, and did PepsiCo join the Facebook ad bans that we've seen for many other big companies? Can you just give us some clarity on that? Sure, happy to. Uh, in, in terms of the the consumer con, uh, consumption patterns, initially we saw a move towards indulgence, as you note. Uh, as the, the quarter got to an end, we now see more of a balance where there is still a tendency towards some level of indulgence, typically later in the day, but at the same time balancing that with, with a more nutritious profile, especially earlier in the day, uh, looking for things like immunity, which obviously orange juice tends to give uh, looking to start the day with a healthy breakfast, which Quaker Oats obviously has been providing. So I, I think you do see sort of a rebalancing in that regard, but with the comfort of, of those big brands. Uh, regarding marketing and, and your question specifically on Facebook, we, we did not join the boycott, but we did announce that we were suspending uh, our social media marketing spending. Uh, you have to keep in mind for us, you know, PepsiCo is a business that that really brings small joys to people and brings brings happiness to people with with the products that we sell. Uh, we want our products to be positioned in places where people are receptive to those messages. And as social media goes through its evolution, we'll continue to evaluate what it is that they're doing, and we'll decide when and how to make sure that our products are are positioned in a place that we're comfortable or consistent with with we the way we want people to receive them. Yes, and customers are comfortable with as well. Thank you so much for chatting to us this morning, Hugh. Uh, congratulations on the results. Hugh Johnson there, the Vice Chairman and CFO of PepsiCo. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. One out of every 100 Americans have now tested positive for COVID-19. That's just the latest marker of how deeply the virus has taken a grip in the United States. Our next guest says it's a war the country has already lost and that America is like the Titanic, steering towards the iceberg. Joining us now is Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. He's New York Times columnist and author of several books, the latest called Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics and the Fight for a Better Future. Paul, fantastic to uh, have you with us as always. Hi. Your op-eds, I think, increasingly in the last few weeks have shown your discomfort, your concern with what we're seeing politically, but also how that corresponds to what we're seeing in terms of the economy. Just spell that out for us. Okay. Um, you know, the rest of the advanced world has followed a pretty clear pattern. The coronavirus hit hard. They locked down. They locked down. Uh, most countries um, locked down long enough to bring it to quite low levels, have more or less managed to control it. They're starting to reopen. The United States blew it. We r rushed to reopen. We rushed to reopen stupidly, not even doing face masks, uh, opening bars, which is the worst you know, um, the kind of thing to do. And the result now is that we are basically moving back into lockdown. We squandered what we achieved at the beginning. Um, we're completely off the charts, literally, actually, compared with the rest of the advanced world in terms of cases. And, and economically, it turns out that, as was predicted by many people, including myself, that failing to deal with this at the beginning actually makes the economic impact worse because it, the, the coronavirus slump goes on and on. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's kind of stunning how badly the United States has handled all of this. 
There's been a deal of um, celebration in certain quarters from the jobs that we've seen regained, seven and a half million jobs in May and June, around a third of those that were lost during the pandemic. You could also argue the price for those jobs being regained is, as you point out, a, a health situation now that feels pretty out of control. What's the risk now of a stalling economy, even perhaps job losses in the coming it looks months? Quite yeah, it looks quite high. I mean, they, um, I mean, I never thought we'd be in a situation where monthly data is just, you know, too low frequency, too far lagged uh, to keep track mm. of what's happening. But that's where we are right now. And I, now I never knew in the past. I don't think I ever paid attention. They, that when, what what week do the job reports correspond to? And the job report for June is actually a report for the second week of June. It's uh, and and that's already ancient history. So it already looks from the various kinds of high frequency data we have, credit card use, uh, mobility data, restaurant reservations, as if recovery slowed, maybe even stalled uh, later in June. And that where we are now is nothing like. So we we had two months when it was like people coming back from summer vacation. We had two months of rapid uh, return, but which brought it back about a third of the jobs, but it wasn't sustainable because we hadn't actually brought the virus under control. And now the prospects for a really long period, maybe a year of double-digit unemployment, though no one can be sure about any of that, um, are, are far higher than I thought they would be. I mean, I was, I was an optimist about a V-shaped recovery given the condition that we actually get the virus under control, and, uh, but we didn't. And so now it's kind of grim. The data is always backward looking, but you're saying in this case, it's just terribly late because things are moving so quickly, whether it's yeah, the economy or COVID. the virus. Yeah, we're living on COVID time. Things move so fast that the fact that, that that monthly data is just too coarse to keep track of what's happening. What about policy response? This is a critical month where we're approaching a cash cliff in terms of the stimulus and the financial support that was given by Congress to individuals but also to yeah. small businesses as well. What needs to be done here and what's the risk that actually there's still those in Congress on the Republican side that, that don't want to provide the support, the increased yeah. support? Yeah, the, the, I mean, we actually did, you know, grading on a curve. Uh, the U.S. did a remarkably good job by historical mm -hmm. standards of coping with this. We, we actually, it looks like poverty may actually have gone down. Largely, I think the most important factor was unemployment benefits and then some other programs as well, PPP and so on. Um, but all of that comes to a screeching halt. Uh, the expanded unemployment insurance comes to an end. You know, again, dates matter in a way they didn't use to. It comes to an end on July 31st, but because it's the pay period ending on, it actually means that a lot of workers are going to be cut off from their safety net uh, around the 25th, um, which is just you know less than two weeks away. And um, Congress, uh, the trouble is, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not an expert in legislative process, but it's hard to imagine that we're going to get anything sufficient in time because, and the point is that Republicans were really set on the notion that we're all going to get back to work and they didn't like the unemployment benefits because they thought, although there's no evidence of this, that it was discouraging people from returning to work. But we don't want people to go back to work because we've got an out of control virus. But making that 180 on policy, you know, just renewing the, the crucial pieces of aid and then also aiding state and local governments, it should be a no-brainer right now. But unfortunately, we got a lot of no-brains um, in the legislative branch. So uh, I don't know. I mean, we're, I'm looking, I think we're looking at a, a very severe hit to consumer incomes and consumer spending um, just three weeks from now. 
Do you think it makes a difference that what we saw initially was particularly the burden falling on Democratic-led cities? Now we're seeing Republican-led states facing significant pressures in terms of pressures on rising cases, on medical systems, to the point where conversations about perhaps needing to see lockdown is happening. Does that change the calculus here on the support, if not now, in the future? I think it does, although the trouble is that, uh, yes, there was a clearer sense, oh, this is a New York problem, or it's a Northeast problem, um, and sort of belated recognition that actually, uh, you know, the virus doesn't care what color your state is politically. Um, But Part of the problem now is that it's very difficult for politicians to admit that they got something like this completely wrong, even implicitly. And so we're having a very delayed response, um, even though the cases are clear. So the the fact that Florida isn't in a complete all hands on deck, do whatever it takes effort to control the virus is insane, but has a lot to do with the fact that the governor of Florida really stuck his neck out on we this is not a problem we have it under control very hard for him to reverse and um, I mean I give credit to the governor of Texas for at least sounding halfway sane um, which is it's hard to do when you've gotten things so wrong in, in before so yes this is now will it, the calculus change yeah I think it will in time I think as the um, as it becomes undeniable uh, that that there's a basically a, a that Florida in uh, in July is like New York in March, uh, then eventually there will be a change. But it's really hard and it's astonishing that we still don't have statewide mask requirements in some of these afflicted states, that bars are still open in some places. This is absolutely crazy, um, but it's a testament to the, uh, to, the, to the difficulty that politicians have in admitting that they were wrong. Yeah, and finding that balance between supporting the economy and allowing people to keep the economy going versus protecting lives and, and people's health. And we've simply not found the appropriate balance yet, to, uh, to your point, well, and we need to find it desperately. It's not hard. I mean, we, we can support people. This is, we're a very rich country. We can get people through a period of, of lockdown and avoid a severe hardship, but we've chosen not to. Sir, always great to have you on the show and get your insights. Thank Paul you. Paul Krugman, great to have you on. Take care. Thank you. Stay safe. All right. After the break, billions of dollars and thousands of jobs are at risk if international students are kicked out of the United States. Some alarming numbers and some surprises in this. After the break, stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's claimed higher education in the United States could lose as much as $4.5 billion. That's if international students are banned from staying in the United States because their courses are becoming online only. There are over a million international students in the United States, and most come from places like China, India, South Korea. In total, they contributed nearly $41 billion to the U.S. economy last year, creating or supporting more than 458000 thousand jobs. It's also estimated that three U.S. jobs are created for every seven international students. NAFSA, N-A-F-S-A, is the Association of International Educators, and Esther Brimmer is the organization's CEO and joins us now. Esther, fantastic to have you on the show. These are some incredible numbers that I don't think necessarily people understood when they saw that announcement suggesting that international students wouldn't be welcome if they weren't going to be physically in school. There's a high cost to this. 
Hello, Julia. It's great to talk to you about such an important subject. Indeed, mm -hmm. international students are absolutely vital for the United States. They bring innovation uh, to our classrooms. That's good for American students. But many people don't realize they also bring an important economic contribution to the United States. As you've indicated, that they account for 458,000 jobs, according to NAFSA's most recent figures. And actually, international education is the fifth largest service export of the United States. This is important for our economic vitality and for intellectual stimulation. So efforts, so the proposed regulation, which would in effect say to students they have to choose between their health and deportation is devastating. It's wrong for international students and it's wrong for the country because international students are important for this country. It's also putting pressure on the colleges and the universities, surely to sort of force themselves to operate some form of classes in person, which has health potential implications as well, in order to get the money in from these students if they decide that if they can't be in the United States with this particular school, they have to go somewhere where they can operate in person. It, it's creating a, a whole host of issues down the line as well. Julia, you are so right, because indeed you have institutions want to make their decisions about whether to have classes online, in person, a combination. They want to make that decision based on knowledge. After all, colleges and universities are knowledge-based institutions. They want to rely on the best science and the local conditions to make their decision how best to provide the important education that they provide, but also to do it respecting the health of students, scholars, professors, and others. But this proposed regulation pushes them, forces them to be trying to decide how to respond. And remember, it is also extremely short notice. Colleges and universities have been waiting for guidance for months. It is now July. Many institutions open in August. The deadline is this Wednesday, the 15th of July, barely days after the announcement. And institutions are in a quandary about how to respond. And remember, many of these institutions dug into their own pockets to support international students during the spring. For institutions, in many cases, international students stayed in the United States because they wanted to be ready to participate in the fall. We estimate, based on a survey that NAFSA did in April, that institutions spent over $638 million of their own money to help support international students who were eager to be and remain part of the educational community in this country. We don't want to force those students to say, is it my health or am I going to be deported? Those students, as I say, bring innovation. They help uh, American students learn about the world and they contribute overall to our economy. Did you know that one quarter of the people who founded you know, unicorn companies, they're worth a billion dollars, started as international students? That's fantastic. We want to be sure those students who can continue their education and are not forced to choose between their health or their status. It's just too important to the country. We've got to get this right. We've got to push back against this proposed regulation. I mean, you also 
make a good point that is they, they've provided support over this period, this very difficult period, but there's incentive for that because they bring in huge fees. I mean, they also provide the ability to support domestic students, American students, and many of those are subsidised too. So there's a, there's a give and take here. What do you want to see international students do here? What can they do to say, look, we want to come or if we're not coming, we still want to be able to go to these incredible colleges because America's known for brilliant colleges for a reason. What do you want to see from students? Indeed, it's great if students speak up, share their experiences. They can be out on social media, places like, you know, hashtag you are welcome here to share their stories. And they can talk to their friends and co and colleagues. So many um, uh, people are voting constituents who know international students. International students are in all of our communities. So people who know students, who have students as their neighbors, maybe they themselves were exchange students, should speak up about how important international education education is, to be able to make clear to members of Congress and the public that this is very important. This is important for the United States. This is important for the global community. This is important for your local community because those international students bring such benefit to our communities across the country. Yes, in the short term and in the longer term too. Esther, great to have you with us and uh, please keep us updated with uh, what you're hearing and seeing. Esther Brimmer there, the CEO of NASA. Great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right, quick look at what we're seeing for the markets this morning. We have opened up in positive territory. As I mentioned, we've got some deal-making going on in the chip sector. Also, vaccine hopes once again, I think, supporting optimism ahead of what's going to be a bumper week for earnings. All eyes on the bounce. It's expected to be an incredibly tough earnings season. But what, if anything, do these companies have to say about the outlook? That will be key too. All right, that's it for the show. Thank you for watching. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chesley. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.